The NBA Finals are heating up. Looking for hot takes on all the postseason action? The Old Man and the Three, presented by BMW, is the podcast to listen to for the ultimate finals coverage. Host and former NBA sharpshooter J.J. Redick not only has a plugged-in perspective on the action from his time in the league, but he's also announcing the games in real time for ESPN. J.J. has the ultimate insider point of view, and he's taking you along for the ride as he breaks down the best defensive schemes, dunks, and drives from each game. And speaking of incredible drives, there's no better place to tune into your new favorite podcast, The Old Man and the Three, than in a standard-setting BMW. Luxury meets power to create a wholly new driving experience. Push the limits this NBA season with the brand that set the ultimate standard. BMW, the ultimate driving machine. Welcome to what I'm going to call the first episode of Season 2 of The Ocho. As you may have noticed, if you've listened to other episodes of this show, I enjoy watching round pieces of plastic glide through the air. Yes, this is another Frisbee episode. A long one at that, and it almost surely won't be the last. But unlike the other two flying disc episodes, this one has dogs in it. Oh yeah, and one of the most decorated individuals to ever pick up a flying disc. He holds more Guinness World Records than you can count on one hand, and 13 world championships, as well as the Canadian distance record. We'll talk all that and more, so strap in. My name is Tommy Butler, and you're listening to The Ocho. Welcome, everybody. I'm here with flying disc legend Frisbee Rob, a motivational speaker, ambassador, and easily one of the most talented people to ever throw plastic. Rob, thanks so much for joining me. Well, thanks for having me on. From everything that I've seen and read about you on your website, on YouTube, in the news, there are not many sports or games, even those that aren't recognized by the WFDF, World Flying Disc Federation, that involve flying discs that you haven't played and excelled in. How did you first get into disc sports? Yeah, so I started, I think like most people grew up with discs. You know, my sister had a disc, I had a disc. It wasn't a big thing that we did. Didn't really learn much about throwing, was really involved in other sports. So really grew up as a multi-sport athlete, you know, golfing since I was young, skating, swimming, um, hockey was my main sport. Played that all the way until I graduated high school. And in high school, I also played rugby, track and field and soccer. And so for me, Frisbee didn't really come into my life until after high school. It was something where I was living outside of the city, no chance to get involved in organized sports. And I just picked up a disc the first week during clubs week from the ultimate Frisbee team at the University of Alberta and just started teaching myself how to throw. There were not really any good websites at the time. This was back in 2000, so there was no YouTube, <laughs> nothing like that where you could watch videos. So I taught myself a couple of grips and just practiced throwing. And one of my favorite events in track was discus and shot put, where you just try and see how far you can throw. And that's what I tried to do with the, with the Frisbee was just learn how to throw it and try and make it go further. Um, a friend of mine in high school used to throw football. Again, just seeing how far we could throw, how far can you kick a soccer ball? So it was just really that exploration for the first eight months, I guess. And then uh, my first year after university, that was the summer my mother passed away. And I really, thankfully I had found Frisbee and I really poured myself into that. It was a way for me to grieve and discovered ultimate the following year. So before I ever started playing ultimate, I was throwing by myself just in a field with one disc. And so when I started playing ultimate, I learned a lot very quickly. 
but also learned that I could throw it pretty far compared to most people. And the more that I spent just again, throwing in a field by myself, getting better at throwing it further and um, didn't really know what was possible except ultimate, which is really fascinating because growing up doing track and field, you, you would, you would have thought at some point I would have been connected to other disc sports or just understood that it was similar to track and field. And that never happened. And I, even the first time I think I threw an MTA was the summer of 2002 and didn't know that there were competitions, didn't know what the world record was, did that again. I think, you know, a, a bit playing ultimate, we would just go out with a buddy of mine in a field throw MTAs. And a lot of it was just discovery. We made up a disc golf course in, uh, in Halifax, Nova Scotia, where I went to college, made up a disc golf course, but didn't know that there were golf discs. I just threw an ultimate disc. Didn't know that you could throw to dogs. So there, there was <laughs> so much I didn't know. Looking back, it, it was just the right way that I was introduced. If I would have been introduced all of it, probably would not have been doing what I'm doing. And it was just that gradual introduction that, that slowly kept building and getting me into it that I think, I think that's really led to why I'm doing it the way I'm doing it today. If you were to take a wild guess, how many times do you think you've thrown a Frisbee? That's a good question. So I've been playing for about 21 years. And it was funny actually, because this is in my mind years ago, Brody Smith did a video where he said that he threw 10,000 times in a day to practice. And we calculated it out. And that was like a throw every three seconds for 16 hours or something. And we're like, okay, that's not possible. <laughs> and, and he had mentioned like, I've thrown over a million times and we calculated it out again. We're like, that's not possible. But it just makes you think because I do have friends that have been throwing Frisbees for 50 or 60 years. Just how often do you throw? And you know, if you play a round of disc golf, it takes you an hour, you, you throw 40, 50 throws. Well, you know, 40, 50 just, throws would be really good depending on where you're playing. <laughs> well, if, yeah, if you're, if you're a good player. And so, yeah, I, I, I would say the number is more than a hundred thousand, but less than a million. I don't know. It's uh, tough to say, cause some days I'll go out and throw a couple hundred other days. I don't throw at all. Yeah. I, I think it's, to me, it's not so many, how many I've thrown, but what I'm doing when I'm throwing those like there, I do know, for example, that when I do trick shots in schools in front of kids, I have missed that, you know, the basket shot in the basketball net more than 10,000 times, but I've also made it more than 4,000 times. So just right there, just that shot alone in schools, I've done, you know, 14,000, 15,000 times. And that's just one throw, one chance. So it's, uh, yeah, it's just, it's been quite a journey. Wow. So you mentioned that ultimate was the first sport that you really got into after throwing to yourself. What was the first one after that as you were picking it up? Yeah, so the first thing I did get into was disc golf, and that would have been the um, sort of the late summer of 2010. So I had been throwing a disc for about 10 years, playing ultimate for nine years, and a friend of mine got me to come out and gave me a putter, and I just started playing disc golf. And I think the first month that I played disc golf, I played two or three rounds every single day. I just had to figure out the discs and from disc golf, I started learning how to throw further, learning how discs flew. And then I was actually contacted on YouTube by a lady in Calgary where I live. She had a dog and she wanted me to teach her how to throw to her dog. Cause I'd posted a bunch of throwing videos on my ultimate Rob website. So I went out, helped her throw better, but I also started throwing to her dogs and then competed in my first canine disc competition early 2011. So January, 2011. 
And then shortly after that, probably a month or two after that, a friend of mine, Jack Cooksey, I had actually posted an MTA video on my website on YouTube. And it was saying, if you want to get better at pulling a disc for ultimate practice MTAs, because you're throwing it to yourself, it's control, it's distance, it's power. And he's like, wow, this guy can throw an MTA really well. So he invited me to the world overall championships. So that would have been in July of 2011. I'd never heard of the overall before. So very quick um, learning moment for me was what is the overall found out at seven different events over six days. He sent me a couple of discs. I started practicing distance and MTA. Had no idea what accuracy was, no idea what discathon was, no idea what DDC was. Freestyle, had never really done tricks with a Frisbee. And ended up taking, taking a week off of work and competing in my first world overall. Hey, this is post-interview Tommy. I'll be popping in here occasionally to fill y'all in on any context that might be needed. For now, I should just let you know that self-caught flight is the biggest section of overall we highlight in this episode. The goal of the three SCF events are to throw a disc as high as you can in the air and then catch it with one hand wherever it ends up. MTA stands for Maximum Time Aloft, throwing a disc so it stays in the air as long as possible. TRC, or Throw, Run, Catch, focuses on how far you can throw a disc and still catch it without it hitting the ground, so distance is the goal instead of time. SCF is a combination of the two, and we'll explain more in detail about how they combine them soon. I came fourth in distance. I actually came third in self-caught flight, and I actually, between first and third, we were only separated by like 1.5 meters, which is like 0.2 seconds for an MTA or you know 1.5 meters for a TRC. But yeah, I almost won gold medal at my first world overall in self-caught flight. And mm-hmm. ever since then, I've won gold. I won 2013, 15, 17, 19, and also um, I think it would have been 2016 or 14. That was a world title event as well. And um, so for me, it's my favorite event. And from there, it just led me going to my first Guts tournament. Guts is a crazy sport I want to dive into more at some point. In basic terms, two teams line up and stand facing each other and whip a thankfully lightweight disc as hard as they can back and forth, trying to get the other team to fail to catch it. That sounds really easy for the throwing team as the receiving team has to make the catch with only one hand. Just like Skeleton, it is a sport named after a body part that I'm very interested in and yet might never attempt out of self-preservation. It's just, it's really opened the door for me and just seeing it as it is, as a collection of disc sports or disciplines kind of like track and field and so it's really dynamic there's a lot of things that you can do with a frisbee and you can do all of them with one frisbee you can do every single one with a different frisbee as well it just really depends so it's it is difficult to educate people um, to just bring awareness to to what it is all about but I, I believe it's worth it because I went a very long time not knowing what any of it was And if I can make it easier for people, then hopefully we can get more people doing that as well and enjoying it. Definitely. You mentioned that overall is similar to track and field with several events using different equipment, or at least specialized Frisbees. Do all these events happen at the same location? Yeah, and and that's a really interesting thing because if if you look at it, what track and field does, they hold everything in a stadium except the marathon. You know, they do shot put javelin discus inside on the grass, inside the track. And they actually, years ago, they had to change, I think, the javelin because it was flying too far and actually landing on the track and it was dangerous for the runners. And so for us, we could 
in theory hold disc golf would be challenging because it'd be a pretty boring course but we could hold everything inside you know a stadium but right now when we throw a, a golf disc we're throwing golf discs for distance sometimes we're throwing them two football fields so that's impossible i mean you could make everybody throw an ultimate disc and then but you're still going to get people throwing it over 100 meters so it's it's really just interesting looking at the parameters and, and how we can best design you know space for for an overall competition if you have an ultimate tournament you get 20 fields and everybody's at the same site if you do a disc golf tournament you're at one or two disc golf courses sometimes three or four but with overall you need a venue for distance, a venue for self-cut flight, disc golf, DDC. Another sport I really want to talk about in depth eventually is DDC. DDC stands for Double Disc Court. Apparently, according to several legends in disc sports, DDC is some of the most fun you can have with a frisbee, and it's sad that it's not nearly as popular as many other disciplines. Plus, some people call it space-age tennis, and how can you not love that? freestyle and some of them can be the same but it's it is a logistical challenge to run an overall um but there are there is potential to do multiple events um but not a full overall so you could do a th uh, two or three event overall so like a mini overall um, you could do it where everybody uses the same disc those are some things that we've explored because you know when i travel i'm, I'm bringing 50 60 discs to an overall competition and that's not realistic for a lot of people it's, it's just really fascinating once you kind of get into it. And like you mentioned, some of the disciplines are team-based. So DDC, you have a teammate. Freestyle, you can have one or two people on your team. Typically, we just do pairs, so two people. And then everything else is individual. And so it's very different than a heptathlon, which is the closest comparison that I like to make. in a heptathlon in a track and field at seven events. And your points are all based on how you finish relative to the world record. So if you did really, really well in an event and in heptathlon, let's say you ran hundred meters and it was compared to the world record, it was relatively close and your competitors were not, then you would get a lot of points on them. Whereas in overall, you get points based on how you finish because you can't really, you know, we could do it for some of the records, but not every event really has a record. Like DDC doesn't have record. Freestyle doesn't have a record. Discathon, it's a different course every time, so you can't really have a record. So it, it's a different approach that way. And for me, it's just really an amazing event. And I just love that I'm able to be a part of that and help grow it. So I'm, I'm the chair of the overall committee for WIFDF and just learning how to get more countries doing it, bringing that to more places, making it more accessible, making it easier for people to do as well, instead of saying it has to be seven events, how can we do it differently and, and reimagine the overall? In terms of popularity, obviously Ultimate has, there is a professional Ultimate League, the AUDL, disc golf has exploded in the last couple of years, especially after the pandemic, since it was something safe that people could do outside. How would you compare the popularity between those really big disc sports and then the sort of track and field overall sports? Yeah, it's, and it's similar to track. I mean, you look at how many people do run marathons, how many people train for 100 meters. There's a lot of people. It's Those are the premier events. So I like to compare disc golf to the marathon. You know, people go run on their own all the time or they can run in a race, they can run with friends. So if you look at heptathlon or the decathlon and track and field, that's very similar mindset to the overall where it's people that like doing multiple disciplines. And so it's going to be the similar popularity. 
it's also challenging for me to just go out and do the overall because it is so intense. It's not just go out and play around a disc golf. It's go do soft cut flight, go do distance, go do discathon, um, practice some freestyle. And especially with DDC, you need three other people if you want to go play, which is a lot easier to set up obviously than ultimate, right? You can just do two on two uh, DDC. Freestyle, there's a lot of people that just go jam. Uh, that's what we call it. They'll just go and it's just open jamming. So they just show up, they just practice routines, practice moves, work with each other. A lot of people actually go to freestyle competitions with their partner with choreography routines, and then they just jam outside of the competition. And a lot of people have more fun <laughs> jamming than they do actually competing. They'll go to the competitions just for the jamming part. So it's, it's just really a wonderful community and to have everybody integrated and, and understanding that is, is fantastic. So yeah, overall is definitely not as popular, not on the scale of disc golf and ultimate probably never will be. And that's okay. You know, it's, we have our, our own small community. We definitely want to grow that. But I think the key thing is working to have other disciplines, other disc sports organizations, respecting and appreciating what the overall brings. So it's like, if, you know, if Usain Bolt, you're not just going to have a hundred meter competition, right? It's part of a greater thing. It's part of a track and field meet. And so Usain Bolt's not going to be trash talking the, the shot putter discus throwers and saying like, they don't belong here. It's of course they belong. They're doing their own thing. And so that's something that we've seen is, you know, people in ultimate and I, and I, I play ultimate. I, I love ultimate, have a lot of friends who play ultimate still involved in ultimate. And it can be very elitist where we, we get offended if, if somebody asks us if we throw to dogs or is that disc golf? You know, it's an opportunity to educate people. It's an opportunity to tell people about Frisbee and what we do. And that's something that I really try to bring to schools is I show kids what's possible. If they're into ultimate, great. If they're into disc golf, great. If they're into freestyle, that's awesome. And just really showing them what's possible and letting them explore on their own and really not, you know, not trying to force them to do something. And so I think the more that we can work together as a disc sports community, the more that we can do together. And, um, it's it's a long path for sure because ultimately it's time and money that speaks and when people are volunteering their time they only want to volunteer their time with what they enjoy and love which is totally fair and when people are making money they only want to put time into things that will make more money and so i think there's a lot of opportunities for conversations and collaboration and hopefully we can get there awesome Sorry to interrupt the conversation, but I have a quick word from our sponsor. This year, Turkey Day at MyBookie gives you plenty of reasons to be thankful, starting with a $250 risk-free bet on Thursday afternoon when the Dallas Cowboys host the Las Vegas Raiders. Bet the spread between the Raiders and Cowboys at MyBookie. When you win, you win. And if you don't, MyBookie will refund you up to $250. Before you get your wager in, set yourself up for success by doubling your first deposit when using promo code SPORTSDRINK, that's one word, SPORTSDRINK at MyBookie, to double your initial deposit all the way up to $1,000, so you won't need to break the wishbone to be the one to come out ahead. Feast risk-free on Turkey Day with MyBookie and make sure to stick around for seconds as they gear up for what should be a fun Black Friday with tons of odds boosts that will have your belly and pockets full. Bet anything, anywhere, anytime with my bookie. We've mentioned each of the competitions that makes up the overall. Would you mind giving us a brief explanation of each before we really dive into MTA? That's a great question. So DDC, it's like doubles tennis, 
except there's two balls in play. So it's two discs in play and you're trying to basically get both discs in one court at the same time and you're throwing them back and forth. And some people call it escape because that's ultimately what you're trying to do at a higher level is escape and not have the other team catch you with two discs at once. And similar to volleyball scoring, so you go to a certain point, you can play you know, best of three, best of five. Um, you switch sides after every five points. So if there's wind one way, then both teams will get to play with wind. There are DDC courts you can buy. So instead of just having cones, because the line does matter. So sometimes you'll throw a throw that lands, slides just short of a line and it's in. Other times it slides, touches the line, it's out. And so if you don't have a proper court, it's really tough to tell that. Um, accuracy, so it'd be like, you know, three point competition. So we have a target built, you have seven sites and you have four throws from each site. And so you have um, two on either side and then three straight down the middle. And so you're going to be throwing some angle shots. And so 28 throws total, and you're trying to do, um, get as many as you can through the target. Um, Discathon, it's kind of like an obstacle race course, except you don't have to travel the course, but the disc does. Usually it's about a kilometer long and it's through, you know, a park with some hills, some trees. So you're trying to throw the disc around trees, sometimes through trees. You'll have a couple of tests. And if you miss the test and you have to take a penalty. And so it's a race, you're racing, you know, four or five people at a time and you can have heats. And so if there's a whole bunch of people, then if you win your heat, then you advance to the next round, then you can have quarterfinals, semifinals and finals. Discathon is a lot of fun. I love that one. In the discathon, are, do you have one disc that you're trying to throw around a specific tree and then you chase that disc to where it lands and then throw to the next spot? Or are you just running to different spots along the trail? No, exactly what you said. So you th would throw the disc around a tree, but you can't throw the disc you just threw. So you actually can carry up to three discs with you. So some people carry one in each hand and then put one sort of tuck it in their shirt or their shorts. Because what happens is if you throw a disc and it rolls on the street or out of bounds, you can't get that disc back and you have to finish with two discs because if I only have one disc left, I'm done. I'm eliminated from the race. So you have to be very careful because we'll, sometimes we'll set up obstacles or tests or gates where it's very close to a road and you can take a chance, but the chance is you get your disc you know, stuck in a tree, it rolls out of bounds and then it's gone. Um, so that one's a super fun one. Uh, distance just throw it as far as you can so it's just like a long drive competition you have again different heats and so typically you'll have two rounds of five throws and then the top um, five throwers go to the finals sometimes if we have a lot of people we'll make cuts after the first round self-caught flight is my favorite and the best way that i can describe it is you know you throw the disc you're running almost a football field and catching your own throw and there are two parts to self-caught flight this is kind of the tricky one that, that gets some people. So a lot of people have heard of maximum time aloft, but that's only, that's only half of it. So maximum time aloft is um, MTA. So you throw the disc, catch it. And we measure from when you let go of the disc to when you first touch the disc and that's total time. And so if you're getting 10, 11, 12 seconds, that's a good time. The other one is called throw run catch or TRC. You throw it and you throw it from a circle similar to like a shot put or discus circle. So you have to let go of the disc in the circle and then you run and catch it. We measure from where you threw it to where you caught it and that's distance. And so if you're getting 70 or 80 meters, that's a good distance. And um, then we measure, sorry, then we combine the two together. So MTA, we convert the time to distance. And so we say roughly 
one second is 5.5 meters. So if you had a 10 second MTA, that would be 55. And then if you had a 50 meter TRC, then you'd have 105 points. How so they... you could you could have a great MTA and then a terrible TRC and not win or vice versa. How did they decide on 5.5 meters per second? Yeah, that's just kind of a years ago, they were kind of debating and they're like, you know, five is, you know, maybe a little too slow. Six is maybe too fast. And, and part of it is they would just also measure. So they would say, okay, if I have a 10 second MTA and it's what would be the TRC. So if you measure the time and distance, that's kind of roughly the average, you know, sometimes you'll have um, maybe a 10 second MTA that's at 80 meters because you had to run really fast, but are you able to actually catch that? Yeah. So just kind of looking at like what the average is and sometimes competitions will actually combine them together where you throw from the circle and then we measure the time and the distance instead of doing it separately. Uh, yeah, disc golf, everyone knows what disc golf is. But on the off chance you don't, boy, do I have a podcast episode for you. And typically in an overall, we just do two rounds and then whoever has the best score after two rounds wins. Sometimes we have time for final nine. So it's the top five scores, we'll do a final nine. And then freestyle. So with freestyle, you ha you'd have typically one partner music you have usually around three or four minutes to do a routine and so the goal is i would throw the disc to my partner they would do some tricks and then do a trick catch they throw it back to me i do some tricks and then a trick catch and yeah you can you can also work together so i throw it they might tip the disc back to me or kick it back to me so there's a, a lot of possibilities with freestyle so freestyle can really be a differentiator and accuracy as well we've seen a lot of people you know, go from doing really well in the overall to dropping down because they didn't do well in accuracy. Before we focus on MTA, where you've set most of your records, you've set records in distance as well with the Canadian distance record. I, I'm trying to remember what it is off the top of my head. I think it's the one thing I forgot to write down. It's 712 feet. I was going to say it's over 700. And I also noticed that you have the Canadian mini distance record throwing a mini disc which I was frustrated is nearly as far as I've ever thrown <laughs> a normal disc so like an actual disc golf disc so that is insane at 367.5 feet or 122 yards how do you train for distance to throw a mini that far no and that's a good point and, and it's interesting because good distance throwers typically will also be good at self-caught flight because they'll get big throws up in the air and so for distance, it's really about timing. It's not, um, it's not a drive in disc golf. It's a different, it's a different throw. And so you're trying to get it high in the air and give it a lot of time to glide. And you actually don't want the disc to, to fade back or hyzer back because then it means it's stalled out. And so you want it to get maximum glide, which means it's basically gliding, you know, a little bit turned over mostly to flat and then lands flat. So, you know, the world records will go up with a really big steep Anheuser really turned over and just get maximum amount of glide and then land flat. Um, and so when I'm doing, you know, any of those, a lot of it is about timing for me as well, a big secret, not really a secret, but something that a lot of people really downplay or, or really don't understand, I think properly is the amount of the amount of spin that's required on, on a disc. And so it's called angular momentum. And so the best way that I explain it is, you know, if you're spinning a top on a table, the more spin you have, the longer it's going to spin. There's a really good video where a guy is holding a bicycle wheel and the bicycle wheel is spinning and he's standing on like a rotating disc. And so when he actually rotates the bicycle wheel that's in his hands, 
he starts to spin. And so the more spin that we have, that's the higher angular momentum we have. And then that's also going to give us more glide, more distance and more control. And so for me, I really practice and work hard on snapping my wrist when I throw. And a lot of freestylers get that because with freestyle, again, having a lot of spin will help you do tricks longer. And so pretty much every single throw that I throw in Frisbee, other than a putt, I'm making sure that I'm putting as much snap on the disc as I can. So, you know, if it's a roller uh, with a mini disc, um, you know, it doesn't matter what it is. And actually in this, by the time this podcast is out, the announcement will be up, but I actually on the weekend broke the WIFTIF world record and I'm now sending it to Guinness to be approved. So I broke the world record for the mini disc distance to canine catch. Confirmed. As I'm editing this podcast the day after recording it, the video of his new world record is already up on the Frisbee Rob YouTube channel. So head over there after this to check it out. And so what that means is I threw a mini disc, Sailor ran and caught it, and yeah, that, that broke the world record. So I threw a mini disc 15 grams, 40 meters. And so it's really interesting when you're trying to throw a mini disc because if you put too much velocity on the disc, it's just going to turn right over to your hand. So you actually want to take the velocity off, but still have spin on the disc. So I'm, I'm trying to not throw it very hard, but I'm still snapping my wrist. Really, really interesting to try and, and learn those two pieces together. For me, the challenge is if I'm trying to throw it really hard and not put a lot of spin on it. And so I always have spin on everything and I just have to learn to adjust my throw that way. Um, but yeah, it's, it's very similar to how a shot put thrower, discus thrower would train. You know, really strong legs, really strong glutes, strong core, really engaging your body, not just your arms. Congratulations. I was wondering that because I had read that you were uh, going to be attempting that on Saturday, I believe. Yeah, uh, yeah I hadn't we got seen it. it. Thank you. Yeah, we got it on our 14th throw. So 13 misses and then a catch and then a miss. So all we needed was one catch. <laughs> well, that works out then. Now that we're on the topic of world records, let's dive into maximum time a lot. I believe yeah. that one of your throws that I was looking at when I was writing down a bunch of records we were going to mention was it ended up being a record for two different sections. I think it was the on-ice MTA of 14.14 that also ended up being the self-caught flight record as well because of the distance that it traveled over that time. Yeah, so the way that that worked, and so when you when you attempt WIFTIF world records, you get 15 attempts per day. With Guinness, there's no limit, so you can go in and do 50 until you get the record. So WIFTIF is 15, and it essentially emulates a competition where you'd have two rounds in the finals. And so the way that we typically would attempt records is three rounds of five throws. And so with that 14.14 second MTA, combining that with the TRC from the same round, I had an 86 meter TRC. My 92, I think it was 92.6, 92.4 meter TRC, that is, that is the world record for TRC and ice skates, that was actually in a different round. And so the challenge with self-caught flight world records um, is you have to have a good MTA and a good TRC. And so for me, that is almost as impressive as setting the MTA or the TRC world record because it has to be consistent. And so I actually have the second best self-caught flight ever. And I have the second best self-caught flight for over 35 ever. <laughs> so I missed that one by like, uh, what was it? Point <laughs> because I had an 82 meter TRC and a friend of mine had, 
I think he had a 12.3 second MTA and I had a 12.12. So I missed that by 0.18 seconds. Wow. Um, and, and again, that's over 35. So my friend did that like 15 years ago. So the cool thing as well about world records is you get to compete against your friends when they were in their prime. So it is like you're competing against them, which is pretty cool. Um, for self-caught flight, the open. So in 2013, I believe it was, I had a 15.3 second MTA in the final. So knowing that that was a good one, I'm like, all right, I need a really good TRC. And I wasn't even thinking world record. I just was thinking I want to win because Simon Lazat was actually at that competition. For those of you who don't know, Simon Lazat is an elite level disc golfer and one of the bigger faces in the sport. He's also previously owned the world distance title with the first throw to break 900 feet. His record was 903.9 feet or 275.5 meters. And I was competing in the final against him. So I had, he had like a 12 or 13 second MTA and I had 15.37. So I had, I think it was like a two, two second lead, which is like we talked about the 5.5. So that's like 11 meters. So I knew that if I beat him or if he beat me by no more than 10 meters, I'd win the gold medal. And I think he had like a, an 86 meter TRC or something. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> so I need it like a high 70 and I got a 79. And so I had, um, I missed the soft caught flight world record for that by, I think three meters. So if I would have had an 82 or 83 meter TRC, I would have broken that world record too. So it's, it's so challenging because you have to have big numbers to get the soft caught flight world record, um, which I'd, I'd love to, I'd love to break that someday. Obviously the older you get, the harder it becomes, but, and we only get really one competition a year to actually do that. So the opportunities are very limited. That's not something I can just go out in a field and, and try on my own. That has to be at a competition. So it's literally, I get 15 attempts once a year. So it's pretty, pretty challenging. How long do you train for something like that with that much weight on it? So much of that is mental and adjusting in the moment. So I actually set the Canadian TRC record in 2017 in England. I had, I think it was an 89.6 meter TRC and I was sleeping in a tent. I was eating meat every day. I was having like, wasn't eating healthy, wasn't really doing much. And it was just a beautiful throw, perfect wind. You just, you sort of just cash in your chips when it happens. And so you could train like crazy and be super fit. Everything's lined up and then you get to the competition. There's no wind. And so for me, it's just making sure I have a balance of all of those. And so training enough so I can really read the wind. It, it's to the point now where I feel like when I'm in the finals at Worlds for self-caught flight, I'm seeing the wind differently than other people. And I'm knowing exactly where I need to put it. And when I see them throw, they're just you know, a couple of degrees off. And I'm like, I got this, I got this. And it's happened you know, five times now. And so a lot of that is just me having the confidence because I've won it, having the the training of actually going in and doing it. But yeah, for me to get these records, it's going to require a lot of training. So I've switched my nutrition up quite a bit this year. I'm going to be looking at getting leaner, faster, working on the throwing, just making sure that, that the limiting factor is not me. Making sure that if there's a wind, then I can do it. If the wind isn't there, then maybe I can still do it. But I don't want to have to rely on you know, my physical ability to do that, I want to make sure that that's, you know, that's automatic, that that's going to happen. 
Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's like, it's like wanting to throw the disc, run hundred meters and then catch your own throw. That's essentially my goal. Um, and you have to be able to get to a hundred meters really quickly as well. Yeah. I mean, if that throw is a 15 second MTA, then you have time, but it's not going to be a 15 second MTA. That's going to be, you know, probably a 12 or 13 second MTA. And so it's, yeah, you got to be there quick. And, and obviously the further you can throw the disc, the easier it becomes because you give, give yourself more time, but yeah, you still got to make sure that you have that speed. Speaking of a, you said a 15 second MTA is not going to happen. Uh, I noticed that the record for the outdoor MTA is 16.72 seconds and it's been held by Don Kane since 1984. What makes that time yep. so nearly impossible to beat? Yeah, it's 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 the almost like a human limit. Like I've had 16 seconds in practice. I haven't caught them, but I've thrown them. I actually threw a 16 second in a competition and, and wasn't able to catch it. And so it really just comes down to that, just having the perfect conditions, the perfect throw. I actually interviewed Don a couple of years before he passed away. And that was basically what he said. He's like, I just, I cashed in my chips. He's like, that was the throw. That was it. It was his favorite event. And um, it was an honor to meet him and to know that it's such an amazing long-standing record and it's with a disc that weighs, you know, like 95 grams, you know, all these specialized discs that we have now. And it's ultimately, it's just getting it up in the wind and just having the wind hold it there. My 14.14 second MTA on ice skates. I don't know if that'll ever be broken. That is my best throw ever. And I've thrown thousands of throws in, in practice and, uh, I don't know, like, yeah, I just couldn't even, when I, when I threw that throw and it went up there and sat, started towering, I was like, okay, this is, this is it. You have to get this. Um, even my, I remember my 15.37 second one, that was terrifying because it just, when it just lifts and it just flattens out, you have no idea where it's going because there's no, there's no reference. It's not like an edge of the disc is, you know, lower than one edge and you know, it's going that way. It's literally flat. 150 feet or whatever in the air and you have no idea where to go <laughs> so it could you kind of have to just pick a direction yeah you just have to pick a direction and go and and mta is interesting because you have everybody yelling like everybody wants you to catch it everybody wants to see a good throw so for a lot of people my 15 second mta that's the best mta they'll ever see you know they'll never throw that that'll be the best one they've ever seen and so it's just, it's like when you watch someone get a hole in one in disc golf, you're almost more excited to watch it than you are to actually throw it. So that to me would be an amazing record. That would be, I wouldn't say the cap on my, you know, Frisbee career, but that would be so satisfying to get that, um, to even just get something in the 16 seconds, just to know that I can, it's just, it's one of those things where, you know, you throw so many times you've, you've watched it so many times to just actually see that happen. Um, would be really special. Do you think that 16.72 will ever be beaten? I really, I have to believe it because I want to beat it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, in the 10 years I've been competing, that that the 15.37 has been the best in the world and no one has really come close. There hasn't been anyone else hitting 15. I don't even know about 14. I've had a couple 14s as well. And um, I don't know, it's tough to say. It's really tough to say, but uh, there's a lot of people. And I think the, the thing is too, the longer that the record goes unbroken, the less people will be around who actually knew Don Kane. And I, I think that would be really special for someone to break it that knew him 
because it would mean that much more to them. Um, you know, if it's broken 20 years from now and the person who breaks it never heard of Don, never even watched the video, to me that loses a lot of a lot of the magic, I think, of it. Definitely. I totally agree with you there. Going back to the on ice world record of the 1414, in your introduction video on your website, it ends with the proud Canadian written on the screen. And when I was looking up all the various records and saw that several of them were while wearing ice skates, it's like, yeah, that it doesn't get much more Canadian than that. So I thought that was great. And then also with the mini disc as well, getting a 6.4 on that MTA on ice. Was that one that you were practicing a lot as well? Or was that just set for fun? Yeah, that was a buddy of mine. So he had helped me a lot with my world records in the past. And I thought it'd be fun if him and I went out and just did it head to head. I think I caught the MTA pretty quickly. I think it was on the second or third throw, but I couldn't get a catch for TRC. And so he actually got a catch on like the fourth or fifth throw for TRC. So as we were going for a while, he actually had the world record. And I'm like, oh, that'd be kind of cool if he broke it. But then deep down, my competitiveness was like, but I want that record. <laughs> and I ended up getting a catch, I think, on the very last throw, and I broke his record. <laughs> so I got it. But um, no, I mean, I whenever the ice is good, I, I love going out and just throwing. And so I've practiced a lot on ice. Didn't practice the mini that much. And so the more I practice the mini, for sure, the better I'll, I'll get at it, just understanding the wind and everything like that. But it's challenging because when it's cold, um, air's thinner and the discs are much stiffer and so they don't they don't move as much and so it's really tough to get more movement on them and that's something you really want with with um, any sort of self-caught flight is you turn the disc over a little bit or you flip it over and then you want it to kind of come back a little bit and, and flatten out and so when it's cold a lot of times it doesn't do that it just rolls right over and crashes and the danger with that is depending on the discs you're throwing, they will shatter. And I've had a couple of discs shatter on the ice. And so I really try to make sure I at least get there because I can skate fast and I can run. And so even if it's a bad throw, I try to just get there to make sure it doesn't break the disc. Because some of the discs I use, they actually don't make anymore. They're very valuable, um, which is also another challenge with soft cut flight is <laughs> how can you attempt a record if they don't even make the equipment for that record? So that's something we're trying to do as well as get more of those discs printed. But but yeah, no, it was it was a really fun thing. And I'm hoping to actually go back this year for the Silver Skate Festival. And my goal this year, I'm not going to attempt the MTA world record because I feel like, you know, it's not that it's, you know, a waste of my time, but I really want to make it a big event focused on TRC. So my goal would be to catch it over 100 meters. And then being Canadian, I can promote that as catching it the length of a Canadian football field. So that would be the goal is I really want to really want to hype that up, um, trying to catch it over 100 meters on ice. For catching a MTA throw, you have to catch it with one hand, which I found very interesting. What is the reason, I guess, for having to catch it with one hand? And then also, why do they not make uh, those discs anymore if they're the best ones for this competition? Sure. So no one's actually asked me that question before. Um, I need to go back to my buddy Stork. So Dan Roddick is like the godfather of Frisbee. Again, I'm sure it was a conversation where people like, it's so easy to catch with two hands and you throw with one hand, so you should catch with one hand. And it does make the event more difficult because if you catch with two hands, it's simple. So I, I, that's probably why that it just, it adds another element to the event. But also in a lot of, um, like in, in Guts, for example, you can only catch with one hand. You can't catch with two hands. So it's probably similarly re related to that. 
and guts was invented before the overall. Um, so I'm thinking that's probably where it came from. Is it just that just makes the event a bit more challenging? You throw and catch with one hand. Uh, and then the other piece with the discs. So a part of, part of it is they're just they're not very popular. You know, even if we had a couple hundred being sold or even a couple thousand. I mean, <laughs> certain molds of golf discs are selling two or three or four hundred thousand um, at a time. So it's just there's no incentive for companies to make them because it's just not a popular event. So my hope is as we get it more popular or as you know manufacturers are able to catch up with the demand of discs, then hopefully they can start making some of these specialized discs again. I tend to forget when I'm interviewing people because I would get really into the sport i'm like man this sounds like a ton of fun i could totally see why people do this i forget that it's not nearly as popular as i start to believe it is so that was i was like why people do this all over the place and i guess it's yeah just a few people are doing it yeah i, yeah, hope, and I hope that it increases soon it's and it's not that i i don't get it but i also don't get it the fact <laughs> that i'm like my friend glenn and i and he hasn't been to an overall competition since 2012, I think. Um, but him and I were the only Canadians in 2011. And since then, I've been the only Canadian to compete at Worlds. And I'm pretty much the only Canadian in Canada to do all the events. There are some people from Toronto that have gone to some of the overall competitions, but they mostly just do freestyle. So it's just really interesting. And I mean, if you look at the number of people that do it compared to how many people play and how many people could play. Yeah, I don't know. It's just, I'm not sure what it is. If it's, we need more organizations, we need more people talking about it. We need more awareness. I think a lot of people probably do it for fun. Um, you know, Brody Smith has some MTA videos and I think he calls it boomerang, Frisbee boomerang now. And there's a trick shot guy on Instagram that does some boomerang shots as well. He calls it boomerang. Um, and there's a lot of people that watch it. So a lot of people know that it's a thing but maybe it's it's kind of like me years ago where I didn't know that there was actually competitions or records or things like that. I just did it for fun with friends. So if, if people actually know that it's a formalized competition, then it might give them more incentive to do that. I think sometimes when it's just free play, people do it for 20 minutes and then they're like, all right, what's the next thing? Where if they're actually working towards something, then it you can hook them a little better. I think that that for me is what's really hooked me is wanting to compete against people and wanting to practice and train and knowing that there are goals that I can set in this instead of just randomly going to a field, which can be very enjoyable as well, but it's not going to be something where you, you start putting more of your time into. It's definitely, I've done MTA unintentionally before just tossing a <laughs> Frisbee around by myself, see how high I can throw it and catch it. Uh, I think almost everyone that's held a Frisbee has done that at least once. Uh, but I can also see how, with disc golf there's very clear goals as soon as you get to any course it says yep. the par right there and your goal is to beat the par uh where unless you have someone with a stopwatch uh it can seem like mta is just sort of throwing to yourself or boomeranging it which is what i had always thought of it when i was doing it by myself yeah and i've seen it at some ultimate turns before and actually it was funny i there was a layout competition at an ultimate tournament i went to years ago and I actually did a, a self layout. I did an MTA layout. And I think I ended up winning the layout competition just for that. <laughs> but again, it, that was like probably seven or eight years before I even knew that I could compete in, in MTA, even knew that it, it was a competition. 
So it's just kind of wild that with the amount of knowledge and information we have and data available, that these things are not more prevalent and more people aren't doing them. Even, even with COVID, like that would have been the great, great opportunity for people to do more MTA and self-cut flight and things like that. And part of it is, you know, my channel's not big enough. If it was, if it was more popular, I'd be able to help out with that more. Um, part of it is getting groups like USA ultimate bought in. So they did, um, they had a, a skills challenge or skills competition. And they had a couple things in there. Like, I think they had a forehand backhand distance. I don't think they did MTA. They did a TRC, but it had to be within an ultimate field. So yeah, they know there's definitely some potential and it's part of it is, I guess people just don't know what they don't know. Like I played ultimate for nine years. I did MTA at practice with people. I just, but I didn't know that there was more to it than that. So it's just a lot of it's a marketing piece for sure. I hope that as more Frisbee disc sport continue to grow as much as they have been recently, that it continues to spread to other disc sports as well. I hope so. And, and just even the point of, you know, when I was in Israel 2018, helping coach an ultimate team, I set it up where people could actually set, uh, I think we did distance world records or distance national records. And we had people going after that. So it's something you could set like a school record for MTA. You could set a, a regional record, a national record. I would love to have those in place because then more people are incentivized to actually go for it, you know, and, and they have a, a goal and a reason to go after it. So uh, no, I'm, I'm with you. I hope that more people hear about it and start trying it out. Definitely. Hopefully this will help with that. I hope so. <laughs> One other MTA category I really wanted to mention when I was doing my research was the galactic MTA. Uh, Upon reading those two words, well, I guess five, four words? Anyway, upon reading that, I was really hoping uh, that it was maximum time aloft while in space, but I didn't want to get my hopes up in case it wasn't. Luckily, it is. How do you count MTA while in space? Yeah, so Stork, so Dan Roddick actually worked with the astronaut that did that. And I think it was a Swedish astronaut. Yes, and that astronaut's name is Krister Fugelsang. And he's also a former Swedish national Frisbee champion and held the Swedish MTA record in 1978. Just goes to show, disc athletes aren't all just hippies. Even Frisbee Rob holds a diploma in electrical engineering. But I digress. So yeah, he just let go of the disc and started his clock, his uh, stopwatch and then grabbed the disc and, and that was it. And he was on the uh, space shuttle that was back in 2006. Um, so <laughs> that's not one that you're going to have a lot of opportunities <laughs> to practice, but, um, we were joking that we would call, you know, we, we shouldn't almost call it the galactic because, you know, to say it's the best in the universe. Well, what if somebody on another planet has a better MTA, right? <laughs> you gotta, you, you don't really know. So maybe we should call it the earth MTA. Maybe we should call it like the earth outer space MTA or the, you know, the Milky Way MTA. The true um, world yeah, no, record. We had a lot of fun with it. Yeah. Yeah. I was surprised that it's only 20 seconds. I feel I, you could yeah. hold it there for, depending on how carefully you were allowed to let it go, you could hold it there for a long time. I feel like he milked it. He didn't milk it enough. I think if it would have been a Frisbee player, they would have gone for like 39 or 40 seconds for sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think he probably caught it really high and didn't wait till it was almost on the ground. <laughs> no i'm sure he got heckled for doing that too that it wasn't they're like come on and i don't know how many attempts he had probably just one attempt so it might have been a bad throw <laughs> i hope that someone that loves frisbee becomes an astronaut just to break that record <laughs> that is my new goal 
you imagine that's their incentive <laughs> that'd be amazing not scientists nothing like that just i want to break that 20 second record it was nowhere near high enough yeah and then just retire it's like, all right my goal's done <laughs> let's move on to the trc throw run catch again you have the guinness world records on skates with 92 meters over 300 feet do you find the on ice varieties uh, of these competitions easier than the on i guess solid ground grass yeah so it's easier to throw on grass, but it's easier to catch and get to the disc on ice. So I find it easier to get bigger throws off on grass, but harder to get there. Whereas on the ice, it's easier to catch bigger throws, but it's harder to get bigger throws, if that makes sense. It's hard to do um, an X step while sliding. Yeah, and apparently, so when I broke the record, it was actually my friend Tim Mackey that had the record. He's from Minnesota. It absolutely does not surprise me that the last two people to hold this record are from Minnesota and Canada, respectfully. But it does bring me joy. And I had met him in 2011 at the World Overall, and he's encouraged me to go for it. So I think I actually broke it 2013, so about a year and a half later. And he told me that he actually did a 360, which I don't know if you'd get an advantage on ice doing a 360. Um, to me, I really try and plant when I throw, I try and plant hard and then start skating. So yeah, it's, it's interesting because yeah, you can't get as much torque on the throw, but I can be a bit riskier. And so something I haven't talked about, you know, about really at all is sort of the technique of it, but essentially we think of the wind as coming at us from 12 o'clock. And so for MTA, I usually throw at 11 o'clock TRC, I throw at one o'clock. Um, and so on ice skates, I can throw more like one, two o'clock more downwind on grass. I wouldn't, cause there's no way I'd even get there. So there's no point, but on ice, I can be a little riskier and really try to, you know, get on my horses and just go fast. So it's really interesting just playing around with that and playing with the wind and, and seeing what happens. And again, a lot of that is just, you, you do it enough. You understand how to use the wind. Uh, my slogan is let the wind guide you. So it doesn't matter what we're doing in Frisbee. We're always going to be in a way at the mercy of the wind. And it's just us understanding how to use the wind to our advantage. With, you mentioned 360s. I believe in the videos that I've seen, for the most part, even on grass, you don't throw with 360s for MTA or TRC or any of these self-caught flight attempts. Is that because of accuracy or the extra distance would be too hard to get to? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question. So I definitely do 360s for distance. And and partly that is, I don't find the angle as big of a deal, but I find to, for me to get more distance, I'm giving up some control. And in MTA and TRC, you know, that angle is so important. And because um, in distance, if you're a little off, you might get away with it. But in, in self-caught, if your angle is a little off, it's just going to crash in the ground. And so uh, for me, it's more important to have that control with the angle than it is to actually, you know, do the 360. I've definitely done it a few times. Might be something that I bring back, you know, as I'm starting to really push the limits and I'm like, I really want those records. So maybe I will, you know, push the limits and try and get a bit more distance for sure. But yeah, part of that is, you know, just again, that trust in your throw. And I've been able to do really well without the 360. But I think, yeah, maybe maybe to take it to the next level, I have to add that back in. How many? How much farther can you throw with the 360 than without? Yeah, that's a good question. So John Kirkland, who's distance legend, 
Um, his son, Cody, actually is, plays ultimate DDC and disc golf, very high level player. So John thinks it's about 10%. Really hard to, to quantify that because, I mean, you could do 10 regular, 10 360. Um, but a lot of it is if you're doing it properly or not. Yeah, and a lot of it's timing, like Simon and David. Simon Lazat, David Wiggins Jr. Definitely do 360 when they're throwing. In case you haven't listened to the disc golf episode of the Ocho yet, David Wiggins Jr. currently holds the world distance record with a throw of 1,108.92 feet, or about 338 meters. Something that in the beginning I didn't find the value, but now that I've gotten better at it, I find the value. I find it just helps with timing. I also find it's a little easier on your body because you can really spin through that. Whereas if you're just doing a normal throw, I find it's a little more torque on your on your body, which isn't ideal. So I find maybe you can throw, for sure you'll get, I think, more power, but you'll also be able to sustain that power for longer, I think is one of the, the benefits of it. Interesting. I know that the current distance record is 1108, and that in the video, David Wiggins Jr. is throwing in what looks like a hurricane. With the way the competition is run, being outside, it's impossible to control the weather and wind factors of the day you happen to be competing are what they are. Are you of the mindset of preferring to find a way to make the competition more controlled? Or do you just want to see how far someone can get a, ple- a piece of plastic to fly despite any conditions? Good question. I was there and it was the third day of the competition. And so what makes it really interesting is the first day we had ideal winds. It was like 18 miles an hour. That was when Simon actually became the first person to throw 900 feet and David threw just behind that. That was when I, I think that was the day I threw my longest throw. That was when I broke the Canadian record again. And then on the Sunday we had no wind. So I don't even think Simon and David threw that day. I think they took the day off because there was no point to throw with no wind. And that's when we did some of the women's world records for rolling. I think we did some upside down and overhand world records as well. We did some of the mini records maybe. And then on the Sunday or the Monday morning, when we got out to the the flats, it was crazy. And we even talked about canceling it. We're like, this is just too much. Like, are we even going to be able to throw in this? And we did some warm ups, and David actually threw a, a more understable disc. I sort of wasted my rounds. I kind of regret that I, I didn't take it a bit more seriously because I'm like, well, I'm not going to be able to, you know, and as much as we're trying to compete against each other, we also want to go against ourselves. So I ended up going the extreme and I was throwing like 110 gram disc and thinking I could just throw it up and the wind would just, you know, <laughs> just take it, but it, it, it just dropped it down. So I actually had shorter throws on the Monday than I did on the Saturday. Um, and part of it was Simon and David, you know, Simon, his throw was clocked in once at over hundred miles an hour. And I think David can throw that fast as well at the time. So it didn't matter to me what the conditions were. Those are going to be the guys that had the world record. You could, you could argue that Eagle's on the same level as well. And I, I would agree with that, but to me it's outdoor distance. And so to try and measure the wind, it would be impossible because if you're standing on the line, do you measure the wind that's at your feet? Do you measure the wind hundred feet up in the air? Do you, how do you measure the wind 500 feet down the field? What about the wind to the right? So there's no accurate way of measuring the wind. And so I think for that reason, we just, we don't, you know, we can say what the wind was on the, the wind meter at the time, but it's not like track and field right? Where we can say, okay, if it's under a certain wind speed, we negate it because what is that wind speed, right? Is it 15? Is it 20? Is it 25? And because there's so many variables as well with the disc, depending on the height and the angle and the disc that you throw and the speed you throw. So for me, it's just how far can somebody throw? We knew that, and this was a conversation that happened 40 years ago. They knew that there'd be some day where they showed up and people 
had insane wins and they're like, okay, the record's going to go down. And that's what happened. You know, it's not that we had planned to go out that day and break the record the night before that we had planned months in advance. And it just so happened that the wind was what it was. So I, to me, I think the, the more interesting and exciting piece, and this is something that Simon Lazat and I've talked about was head to head distance competitions, kind of like the long drive that they do in golf, because then to me, it doesn't matter what the conditions are. You're trying to out throw the person you're going against, you know, because, because those things were all about, can we break the world record? That's what the whole point of going to the desert was, is can we break the world record? And so I think now it's, it's more shifted on, you know, who can throw the furthest today in, in the, in the, you know, conditions we have. And we've seen that a few times at, I think world's had a distance competition, USDGC has competitions. And so that to me would be something really interesting moving forwards. Um, and Finland is actually working on their own distance series right now that I'm helping consult with them on is having their own distance challenge series. So to me, that is kind of the future is head to head. Can you, you know, throw better than everyone else on the same day? Interesting. Do you think that that record of over 1,100 feet will last forever? Or is that going to change as disc technology changes? And if there's a windy enough day? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's impossible. I think it's unlikely because to have somebody of that caliber and wind of that caliber, I don't know. I don't know how much more they'll change the discs to get that you know extra distance. So it's hard to say, but I, I mean, it definitely could. It's just we're, again, we're having less opportunities because we have not had an event in the desert since then. And that was, um, I think that was 2016. Let's double check that. Yeah, 2016. So it's been you know almost six years since we've had an event in the desert. And um, so I don't know, it'll be interesting. I really think there is value in going after the indoor distance. So Dan Berman, who passed away sadly a few years ago, currently has the indoor distance record and he's done a lot for the, or did a lot for the sport. And I think that would be a really interesting one to go after because it's, it's currently 143 meters. It was set in 2005 and it was actually, you know, inside of an aircraft carrier. So I think an indoor distance competition would be really cool. And, um, and the women's record is only 96 meters. So there's definitely some potential for that. And that was actually set in 91. So, yeah, I, I think there's some interesting potential with indoor distance and we'll just see what we can come up with i was going to say how do you find a space indoors that's wide and long enough to throw over that over that length and aircraft carrier that makes sense (laughs) yeah we're looking at um there's like some aircraft hangars that are apparently pretty big the challenge i think sometimes with big field spaces indoors is you know they're soccer field size so they're not big enough and even buildings like big warehouses, they have a lot of columns. So you'd have a few obstacles to try and throw around. But I think I think finding the place would be a challenge. But once we find the place, then we could have some really interesting things happen. Definitely. Of all of the records we've mentioned so far, are there any in the self-caught flight category that I have failed to mention that you have? Like I have a couple of state records as well. And I think it's just, again, because, because back in the 70s and 80s, they used to have... Um, the NAS, the North American series, I think it was called, or the national North American series. And so it was the qualifying for the world, um, the Rose Bowl, the world Frisbee championships at the Rose Bowl in California. And so they would be doing MTA competitions seven, eight times a year, maybe more. Whereas now it's, you know, one or two times a year and that's it. So it's really hard because, you know, when you're in your prime, you want to get as many opportunities as you can. And I just don't have that many opportunities. 
And so I think that's, that's part of it is my incentive for getting more events is that I would have more opportunities to, to do my best while I can, which I'm really, really hopeful for. But if, if not, then I'll just keep doing what I can with what I have. Definitely. What do each of these records mean to you having so many? Really, they're becoming a legacy, but it's also, I'm trying to, I'm trying to break my friends records that they set 20 years ago. (laughs) And so my goal is to inspire people. So then when they are my age, they can try and break my records. And it's just kind of this, you know, constant cycle of, you know, how do we, how do we challenge ourselves? How do we really explore what we're capable of and our potential is go after world records. And so it's a challenge for you. It's a challenge to, you know, learn from other people and then try and raise the bar for them. And if I do my job teaching and inspiring people, then hopefully they'll be able to, you know, learn from that and do even better than I did. And then, you know, they teach other people and it just keeps going and just keeps pushing the limit. Like I, I think to me, a book I really connected with was the Wright brothers story, you know, way back in the early 1900s when they were trying to invent flight and they had way less resources than the people they were basically competing with from like the, like the Smithsonian or national science or whatever, way less money, way less resources. And they were able to get it first because they just had that, that desire. And so for me, it's a drive. Yeah. Just trying to go out and just see what I can do with what I have and hopefully inspire others to do that. And I think, you know, as society, if we celebrate excellence, instead of encouraging mediocrity, then we'll be a lot better off. And to me, I guess the way that I can really try and do that for other people is do that through Frisbee. And then hopefully they see what I'm doing with Frisbee and then they take that back to their own life with what they're doing and really try and push themselves to be more excellent in whatever they love to do. Awesome. One more quick ad break before we're free to finish out the rest of the episode. We have a new sponsor here on the Ocho. Symbol is the stock market for sports that allows you to profit off your sports knowledge. On Symbol, you can trade sports teams like stocks and every time your teams win, you earn cash. Use your sports knowledge on Symbol to buy low, sell high, and earn cash payouts when your teams win. Join the 7,000-plus early adopters who have started to invest in their favorite teams. Visit www.simbull.com to create a free account, and when you deposit, make sure to use the promo code SD to make your deposit risk-free. Visit Symbol.com and use the promo code SD and your deposit will be risk-free. That means even if you lose money, Symbol will refund your initial deposit, no questions asked. Join Symbol and start investing and profiting from your favorite teams. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh my, look at that, he is! And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win! Unbelievable! When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate 
isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com match. Just go to Indeed.com match right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash match. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. Oh, I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. <laughs> I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told, so I'm going to tell it. Broomgate. How a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word. Broomgate. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This year, Turkey Day at MyBookie gives you plenty of reasons to be thankful, starting with a $250 risk-free bet on Thursday afternoon when the Dallas Cowboys host the Las Vegas Raiders. Bet the spread between the Raiders and Cowboys at MyBookie. When you win, you win. And if you don't, MyBookie will refund you up to $250. Before you get your wager in, set yourself up for success by doubling your first deposit when using promo code SPORTSDRINK. That's one word, SPORTSDRINK, at MyBookie to double your initial deposit all the way up to $1,000, so you won't need to break the wishbone to be the one to come out ahead. Feast risk-free on Turkey Day with MyBookie, and make sure to stick around for seconds as they gear up for what should be a fun Black Friday with tons of odds boosts that will have your belly and pockets full. Bet anything, anywhere, anytime with MyBookie. Finally, check out Sports Drink's live audio partner, Spotify Greenroom. Visit sportsdrink.org to check out the network's lineup. That's sportsstrength.org. I think it's finally time to talk about the moment of your career, I guess, recently that may be known by the most people with those canine competitions. I know that you posted the uh, blog post recently at the time of this recording that it had been seen almost 50 million times, <laughs> potentially. Yeah. And it's only been a couple weeks since that has happened. So you hold the Guinness and the Woof Woof World Records for 
the longest throw and the longest MTA to a dog that then catches that disc. I believe the MTA is 10.59 seconds to Davey Whippet back in 2016. Uh, 6.9. 6.9, yes. I must have yeah. mistyped that. Back in 2017, I believe. What was the record in that category before you set the new one? It's a good question. I don't actually know if it existed. Um, I could quickly check the history. Oh no, I think it was like nine seconds or something. Yeah, and my goal, like we actually had a miss at like 11 and a half seconds. And so it's one of those things where you're breaking the record, but then you're also like, wow, I wanna, I wanna set it as high as I can because you know I won't be able to do this with him again. And I wanted to have a record where it would be unbeatable. But I mean, that is the point of records, I guess, right? Is <laughs> yeah. for people to go after them and try and beat them. Um, but that, that was a fun one, you know, cause he, the way that he tracked it, the way that it flipped and flattened and came back was, was really cool. How many attempts does it take to, I know that you said you have 15 attempts for the Woofdiff world records, but how many throws do you have to throw to get something that good? Yeah. So, I mean, that one, we warmed up a bunch, just, I warmed up on my own just to try and make sure that I was getting the, the flight I wanted and then warmed up with him a few times to make sure that he understood what we're doing that it's going to go up in the air. We're going to have to run back and try and get it. So once he kind of gets used to what we're doing, then it's easier for him. And I mean, in, in a course of 15 throws, you're going to have maybe one or two that are good, three or four if you're lucky, but it's, it's really tough because it's just such a fine line. And so if you're in a competition and you get five throws, a lot of times your first throw is the best. And then the next four throws, you're just trying to chase that first throw. And that's happened to me a lot of times where your first throw is the best and you just, you're not going to improve on it. Um, so yeah, you just, you try and go there as ready as you can. And a lot of it is really self-coaching yourself through that. You know, like for example, on the weekend we had 13 misses in a row and I was able to adjust and correct and threw the disc a little lighter. And then we got that 14th catch, but sometimes you don't adjust or adapt. Sometimes you learn after you fail. And so hopefully you learn before, <laughs> before you fail completely. So it's, it's a really interesting sport that way, because in a lot of ways it does mirror life and how we, how we live. What goes into training a dog to track a disc that goes 130 yards and then still be able to catch it after all that? Yeah. So a big part of that is just practice. You know, when I first met Davey and threw to him, when they go around you, when you send them around and they start running, they'll look back just to see if you're moving or if you're going to throw because at first they're not really sure what's happening or they've never, they've never ran after disc that goes that far. So you start with maybe some shorter throws. And then as they start learning that you can go longer and longer and longer. And a lot of it is if, if they have a chance at it, like I've, I've seen dogs where, um, you know, the throw is not a good throw and they know it's going to crash in the ground. So they just, you know, don't run that fast after it or they just stop running after it. So as they can sense it and it's whether they can hear the disc in the air fly over their head, whether they can see it, you know, I think it's a combination of both. And yeah, a lot of it is just that, that teamwork together where they're able to see the disc, they're able to trust where it's going and just go, go after it. And, and they love it. They absolutely love it for them. It's a reward to be able to run after it, grab that, bring it back to you and go again. I mean, it sounds like the best possible scenario to be a dog and have to chase down a Frisbee that long. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and like you mentioned, you know, with that halftime show, it's, I, 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 it's still shocking to me just what happened and how it happened and what's continued to happen since then. It's been uh, just absolutely incredible. So to explain what did happen, the 
as most people who are listening to this episode might know by this point, uh, you went viral recently with a video of yourself throwing a fastback disc 109 yards uh, to Sailor, who uh, is the whippet in the video, at the Calgary Stampeders halftime show in late October. It's, yep. as I mentioned, it's since been seen about 40 million times or more uh, in all of the different posts that it's been. And in your blog, your reaction to it, to its reach, you mentioned the fact or that the first time, it's not the first time you've gone viral, but it's definitely the biggest and it's been called the best halftime show ever. I've seen the whole video and I watched obviously the individual video as well, that there were several throws during that halftime and with the disc going about 30 yards and then a little bit farther and then the real long throws, I think only one of them wasn't caught. Is that a especially good outing? Obviously, 109 yards was the, I think, became the record for the longest throw caught by a dog in front of a live audience. But you mentioned that a lot of the times it's one catch that you get. Uh, was that just like a once in a lifetime sort of situation? He he fed off the energy of the crowd, I think. There was I think, 22,000 people there, roughly. And so like it's, it's like he sensed it was a big deal. And there's a lot of times where we'll practice or we'll be in competition and he'll won't be able to get there. He'll run past it. He doesn't typically drop it. Sometimes he jumps over it. And so, yeah, for him to catch six and a seven, I actually thought he caught all seven, you know, in some of the interviews right after it happened. And then when I actually went back a couple of days later and got the video, I was like, Oh wow. Okay. <laughs> he did drop one. And that was just a throw that he couldn't get to, but he was just, he was fired up. Like it's, he just sensed that it mattered and it was important for him to do that, which is pretty cool. But yeah, I know, I mean, to throw that disc that far is really hard. It's been interesting because a lot of the comments and actually it went viral on ESPN UK recently as well. So that video probably has four or 5 million at least. And a lot of the comments are, oh, you know, anyone that plays disc golf can throw that far. Uh, anyone can throw an ultimate disc that far, but they don't realize that it's a 120 gram disc. It's not an ultimate disc or a golf disc. And I take offense to people saying that too, because I've already mentioned once that Rob's mini disc MTA record was nearly as far as I've ever thrown anything, a disc golf disc. Plus, I've played ultimate for several years, and I can throw an ultimate disc max 85 yards or so. So take it from your just above average Joe, I guess, that what Rob does and did during that halftime show is truly special. Sorry, rant over. You know, the further you throw, the faster you throw, the harder it is sometimes for the dog to actually get there because they're running full speed and for them to slow down or just try and catch that while they're running is really hard. And some of the events that we've done, you know, the, the whole goal is to get three catches out of four throws and we'll get one or two catches out of four. And so, yeah, it's everything just came together at the perfect time. The camera angle, the cameramen were amazing. The announcer was incredible. It was just really a dream come true. And, and like you mentioned, I have gone viral in the past, but never has it led to people reaching out about bookings, which has already happened. Wow. So after the ESPN video went viral, I've, I've had a couple emails from a few interested organizations about booking me. Um, you know, we're going back actually, hopefully to the Stampeders game this, this weekend. I don't know if we'll do another throw, but they want to bring us back and just, you know, say hi to the crowd kind of thing. I'm not sure what their plan is. Um, but no, this is definitely open doors. Whereas in the past, and, and part of the challenge is when you go viral, typically it's on someone else's channel. And if they don't give you credit, then it doesn't go anywhere. And so 
got to give props to companies like ESPN, Lad Bible, Sports Center because they give you credit. They'll post the video to give you credit because it's worth something to them because they get more views, obviously more engagement. But then they also know that it's going to help those people out with what they do. And so I really appreciate that they did that. And they did it before they posted it, which is huge because if somebody posts it and then comments later with you in the comments, it doesn't, that's what's happened in the past and it didn't lead to anything. Yeah. So it's just, it really, yeah, really have a lot of respect for how they do things. Um, Cause that doesn't happen a lot online. I noticed that during a lot of the throws, by the time the disc makes it to the halfway point on the field, Sailor is still 30 yards behind the disc. And with the one that, that Sailor wasn't quite able to catch, it was just a little bit farther than that. How do you control the speed and angle to have it be way ahead of Sailor at the beginning and still float down just in time for Sailor to get there? Yeah, so a lot of that is spin. I put a ton of spin on the disc. Those discs are really nice. Um, so that's called, it's a supersonic from Hero Disc USA. And so I hyzer flip it and then it glides nice and flat and then just basically settles and just sits there and comes down. So as it slows down, it still has a ton of spin on it. So that's how it's able to get out in front of him so far, but then still, you know, slow down a bit and then he has a chance to get there. And that just comes from me throwing, you know, throwing ultimate discs, throwing golf discs, throwing dog discs. And that's really something that I'm very adamant about is throwing is throwing i you know a frisbee is a frisbee but a frisbee is not a frisbee as well yeah obviously golf discs are different than a dog disc but the physics flight um the science of flight everything like that is the same you know you can't you can't change physics just because the disc is a little different right it's you just have to learn how to throw that and so it's it's been thousands of throws for me to throw a dog disc and just learn how they fly um and, you know, going out, so I went out for two practice sessions at the stadium leading up to the event as well, just to sort of get a feel for that. So in the moment, I wouldn't be worried about that. And um, we had no wind at all, which was perfect conditions, meant that I wasn't able to throw it, you know, 120 yards. But um, the way that it worked out, that he ran it in the end zone for touchdown was just perfect. Yeah, I, the calls of touchdown were, <laughs> I, I was getting a little emotional watching it. I was like, let's go. Well, and it was weird because the field's so long and it actually slopes a little bit. So I had no idea where he was catching it. I had no idea if he was in or if he was out, whatever. And so the announcer was trying to look back behind us on the big screen to see where it was. And that's why when he caught it, ran in the end zone, there was, you know, a very slight delay when he called touchdown because he saw him run into the end zone and then he called touchdown. But for me, I wasn't looking back. Like I had no idea. I was looking around like what's happening. Where is he? What's... And he's just like, keep going. Let's do another one. So without him there, it would have been a very different experience because it would have just been me throwing to a dog. So to have him on the mic, game changer for sure, game changer. Because of that performance, Sailor was also named the CTV Calgary Athlete of the Week the first time that a non-human has received that title. Does Sailor have a quote about what that honor means to him? Good question. Ask my girlfriend. What, what Sailor's quote about what winning Athlete of the Week means to him? I don't know if you heard that. I did. Yes. Fantastic. So she, yeah. She has a voice. For him. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just, I mean, for him, it's so his owner says it really well that he just wants to be included. And so whenever like I get up, I walk around the apartment, like I leave the bed, I leave the couch. He just 
where where am I going? He just wants to be included. And so I think to include him in this, and this is not possible without him. You know, it's not possible without me, but it's not possible without him. And, um, you know, just to see what we're able to do as a team and that this, you know, 30 pound dog is able to, to create this, um, is just a really, really neat thing. And anybody who plays ultimate, anybody who plays Frisbee and downplays what it's like to throw to a dog or, you know, gets offended if somebody, you know, mistakes playing ultimate is throwing to a dog. It's, I challenge them to just to try it. It's so fun. It's amazing to just have that bond with an animal and, and it's to have a dog bring it back to you and people love it. Uh, it's definitely changed my life. So you used to work with uh, Davey Whippet, who unfortunately had to retire from competition in 2018. What was it like having to start that process of building that bond with a new dog? Yeah. So it, you know, so I, I was competing with um, another dog named Mutiny, who's a border whippet as well, a couple years older than Sailor. And I competed with him while I was competing with Davey. And so I continued to compete with him, started competing with Sailor, ended up going to a competition in Texas with both of them, and then also Colorado. And was just like, whatever, I'm just competing with my friend's dog still. It's not a big deal. And then when COVID hit, I ended up driving to pick him up from from her place. And then he stayed with me for like seven months. And COVID shut down all the schools. It took away my income. So without him, it would have been a very different experience for me. It would have been probably not a great experience because he gave me a reason to get out of the house, to get out of bed. And um, we really bonded through that. And that, that was a really special time. And we've spent a lot of time together since then. And um, yeah, his owner, you know, sees the bond that we have, sees the, how happy it makes him doing this. So it's, it's hard because you, you don't get a lot of time with dogs. You know, they're not around here for very long, but the time that we do get it, I, th- I think is definitely worth it. And so, you know, even if it's only a couple of years or if it's 10 years, it's just a very special, special opportunity to do that. I think with an animal. There's a reason that dogs are referred to as man's best friend. <laughs> Absolutely. So you mentioned that Sailor's owner. Have you been the owner of any of the dogs you've competed with? And what's it like, if not, to have to work with someone else in order to be able to have a dog to compete with? For sure. It's been interesting. It's it's not something that I ever intended of, of doing. Um, I met her at my first competition, and I threw to like five of her dogs, I think. And... Um, it was, it was really cool. And she saw the value in having somebody who's a good thrower throw to her dogs. You know, it's the same reason that, you know, people that own horses will hire a jockey because those jockeys can run the horse the way they're meant to be run. So she really saw that I was, you know, wanted to bring out the potential in her dogs and I've competed with all of her dogs pretty much. Um, but for me, I think it would be selfish for me to get a dog because I travel, you know, when it's not COVID, I travel quite a bit and what would happen to the dog? I feel like for me to get a dog that I couldn't necessarily take with me on the road. And so, you know, it's, it's tough for her because she doesn't get to see them all the time, but she knows that when they're not at home, that they're, you know, getting a good life and a lot of loving and and having their potential pushed. But yeah, it's definitely been interesting (laughs) trying to work with her and trying to balance, you know, her desires and motivations for what she wants from her dog. And then my desires and motivations and, you know, sometimes how we match well and sometimes how we clash at competitions and, really trying to navigate that has been has been interesting but you know it's definitely helped you know build our friendship and I'm really fortunate for that awesome there's one other Guinness world record that I haven't mentioned yet 
and that is the most drink cans hit with a flying disc in one minute. It's a very different record than the other records that you have, with most of them being in competitions that would be like held by Woofduff. How did this one come about? Yeah, that was interesting. So I was contacted in late 2011, and I got an email from a Hotmail address, and I was basically invited to be on a TV show in China. And so we were kind of going back and forth, and I, I was telling her what I could do, what some potential records could be, and so they basically made up this this record for the TV show. And so this is my only only Guinness World Record that's not a WIFDF record. And I may set Guinness World Records in the future that are not Guinness or that are not WIFDF records, but I really like setting it through WIFDF first because you know WIFDF is the governing body. And I've actually been working with Guinness to try and make sure that the the records databases are linked because right now there's some WIFDF records that have the same title as the Guinness record, but the numbers are not the same. So mm. I think it's really important to make sure that those are updated and consistent. But but no, it was it was an experience um, being on a TV show and you know a couple hundred people in the audience. This was in China, and I met a bunch of other Guinness World Record holders and met the officials from Guinness. And I thought that that was the launching point. I thought my career is going to take off. And <laughs> that was before I was speaking in schools. I didn't really have a public brand. I didn't really know what I was doing. So I think if I had more opportunities, it probably would not have ended well. So I'm, I'm actually glad that I'm getting the chances now as compared to back then, because I wasn't really sure where I was heading back then. Um, but it's interesting too, because that's the only Guinness record that has been broken. Um, and that was actually broken by Bruce Smith. That would have been probably four years ago. Brody Smith is a disc trick shot artist on YouTube, former professional ultimate player and current pro disc golfer. He set the new record in 2017 by knocking down 31 cans. So I don't know if I'll, I'll attempt it again, maybe, but I'd have to get a bunch of drink cans and set it up and everything like that. And, <laughs> you know, it's just not, um, yeah, I may, I may never try and break that, but it's just neat to have gotten my introduction to Guinness through that record and it'll be a very special record forever. Awesome. I would love to talk briefly about how you give back as an ambassador and a motivational speaker traveling to schools. I think you've talked to nearly 150,000 students at 400 schools, led 6,000 plus workshops when you're not competing and that is your full-time job. How long have you been working with, uh, with kids in that capacity? Yeah, that's been about seven years. Um, for the first little bit, I wasn't doing it full-time. I was trying to figure out how I was approaching it. And then I made the shift and went full-time. And so for the last couple of years, well, just before COVID, I was doing about hundred schools a year. And um, I definitely want to continue that maybe in a reduced capacity, but I definitely want to continue that in a big way, whether it's myself or if I'm training people or building a company that does that. What is a day in the life like for you between training for competitions, competing, and being an ambassador? Sure. So if I'm booked at a school, then it's basically I'm a glorified phys ed teacher. So I go into the school, you know, we have a full school assembly when we're allowed. That's where I do the trick shot in front of all the kids. That's where I do, you know, my, my talking about resiliency, kindness, physical literacy, getting unplugged, really combine those messages with something to do with Frisbee. So really try and combine the message with, you know, a Frisbee game or a Frisbee skill and then bring up some of the teachers, some of the, the students to actually do it as well. And then go into phys ed classes. So on average, I would say I do 10 workshops in a day. And the goal is, you know, to teach every single student in that school about Frisbee. 
And so I don't even have to have notes at this point. I've done enough workshops that I know, depending on the grade, depending on how long I have, just the games that I can do. And so that would be like 10 workshops, 30 minutes each, plus the assembly. And then, you know, typically I try to get a workout in after I'm done at the school, maybe go play around a disc golf, just depending where I'm at. And I've learned as well that if I'm booked every day, then I can't get booking. So I try to book a couple of days a week. And then on the other days, I'm working on my other jobs. I'm, you know, working on the, or growing the game with the stuff that I do with, with all my other volunteer things as well. And, and also trying to book schools. Um, so it's, it's a lot to handle. And I definitely have a lot of goals and, and big dreams about how I can make this more accessible to more people. And, you know, it's, I've built a program that is successful and works and I want to figure out how to, how to take this to more people, not just in Canada, but all over the world. So then they can do this if they want to teach frisbee, then they can go into schools and, and do this on their own as well. Do you have any examples on how you have seen your passion affect the school children you teach? Yeah, it's been interesting. You know, when I first started doing this, I'd have a lot of kids message me on Instagram. And then lately I've had a lot of kids sending, you know, or posting comments on TikTok. And so, you know, I don't always necessarily know the impact it's had, but the way that I kind of look at it is the work that I do is one touch point. You know, in a typical sales job, for example, you know, you might have eight or nine touch points before you sell somebody a product, right? So phone calls, emails, website visit, another phone call, product launch or demo or something like that. So for me, sometimes I'm the first touch point for these kids. It's the first time they've ever heard of Frisbee, they've ever seen Frisbee. Sometimes these kids have been playing for a while. And so it's a second or third touch point. So what I really hope is either this is an introduction that, you know, helps them continue on that journey, or it's, you know, something along that journey that helps them continue going, or it just even gives them ideas in their mind about how they can take that back to whatever they like to do, whether it's volleyball or horse racing or singing or dancing or whatever. Um, so as, as far as hearing, you know, impact stories from students that hasn't really happened. Um, and that's something that I learned very quickly was, I may not ever know if this has an impact, but just being there in the moment, talking to the students and the, and the teachers and hearing, hearing what they tell me the day of, or, you know, the couple of weeks after that, um, or even just, you know, seeing it on their faces, you know, I can tell that it is, it's doing something. And so the next goal is to actually build something where it is sustainable. So there is more of a legacy, maybe just not even for me, but just Frisbee in general. So you go into a school to teach Frisbee, then you leave the school, but then now that school has a Frisbee club. And then the Frisbee club could compete against other Frisbee clubs from other schools. And then that could lead to them getting into disc golf or ultimate or going to the overall championships. So a lot of that is just providing more opportunities for those kids to play instead of saying, here's something super cool, but oh, by the way, there's nowhere that you can actually go do that. <laughs> so <laughs> it's trying to create you know, all those pieces or, or at least connect those pieces together. What has your time competing and teaching taught you from those that those that you have taught? I guess what have you learned from those you've taught? Yeah, it's 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 interesting because I've learned so much from so many people and my goal is to just try and, you know, pass on those lessons and you know, sometimes I think that I this almost becomes so automatic for me that I <clears throat> I sometimes don't take the time to learn or to really sit in the moments of what I'm doing in schools and so COVID has really given me a good chance to evaluate my messaging and, and the work that I do and how I can adjust or adapt things. 
like for me this is a long game it's not i'm only going to speak about things that are popular right now like i'm thinking I'm, I'm speaking about things that i care about that i think are valuable that are gonna last with them for a lifetime and um so i really try to listen to you know the principals especially they're the ones who have their finger on the pulse of what's going on in the schools they're the ones that book me so it's important to listen to what they're saying but also important to listen to you know in the staff room for example what the teachers are saying about the the principal or the students you really can pick up a lot of things there and then just understanding you know that frisbee is just one piece in the puzzle for a lot of these schools you know it's they'll do ultimate or they'll do disc golf for a week out of the year and they have all these other sports and so you know to bring me in is some schools it's a pretty big expense other schools it's not but it is a time commitment so when i go in there i want to make sure that whatever i bring them i leave them with something very valuable that they can then take you know into their classes uh, into their lessons whether it's related to frisbee or whether it's related to the messages that i've shared Awesome. For someone listening today, what would be the number one thing that you'd say to them if they were interested in picking up some form of disc sport? Good question. So I think it really depends on what it is and where they are. You know, if you want to go play disc golf, you know, there are many discs you can get started with. If you know somebody, that's usually the best way. And then you just start playing with them. And it's, there's no, there's no sort of you know, secret sauce, it's you could be playing for two years and somebody mentions, hey, try this disc, and then you try the disc and it changes your game. So I think there's all those little moments. So I think it's just get started, you know, and, and are there better ways to get started for sure? But a lot of it is just getting started and, and just making those mistakes, throwing the wrong disc, losing discs, not playing the right course, you know, you'll learn from that as well. Um, you know, if you want to get started in ultimate, sometimes it's a bit more challenging if there's already formed teams so again it's you know reaching out to your network if you just want to go play catch go play catch if you want to get into overall you know ultimately sometimes the easiest thing is to just even reach out to to myself or somebody they know that is doing this and i can point them in the right direction just i have a lot of people send me messages asking about discs and you know where they live where they can get started with certain things because ultimately the more people we start connecting with each other the easier it becomes but it's kind of like you know, if, if somebody wants to start playing basketball, like where would they go? It's like, well, you can go to your local rec center. You just go buy a basketball, just go shoot hoops. Um, if you want to get on a team, you know, contact the local organization. And so I think that's why there's, there's so much value in having courses for people to play, but also having leagues and organizations that actually are running events for people. Because some people may not want to go out and start on their own. They might want to be a part of an event. Um, so I think just by having different offerings will be able to get people who are into it in different ways but i think the biggest thing is just get started if you're curious about it um just talk to somebody or just you know buy a disc and just get started i think what you said about finding a new disc after two years that changed your game uh is a really risky thing to say for me (laughs) because i got into disc golf knowing that it was a way cheaper alternative to uh to ball golf you don't have to buy all these incredible incredibly expensive like drivers and putters it's just a couple discs it's thirty dollars for a yeah a couple discs and then i was like "Ooh, this seems cool that disc seems cool so (laughs) every time i hear like this is my favorite disc like man maybe i need to try that disc yeah and and a lot of it is you you think you know but you don't know what you don't know and so like i remember one time i was throwing it in the wind and i thought well this disc works well and a friend of mine knew that disc he's like try this disc and i threw that he's like see and i'm like Oh, and so a lot of times it's like, 
people can read the numbers and understand what that means. And that's will change them. For me, it's a lot of it's just feel. And so it's just throwing the disc and being like, oh, it does this. Okay, I understand. Um, and then as you get more into it, it's, you know, it's because sometimes you give people like the, the 10 best tips and, you know, three of those tips actually are not going to land unless they've been playing for six months. So it's sometimes tough to, to break down the 10 best tips. It's like the best tip now, the best tip in six months, the best tip two years from now. Um, so I think that's why like a lot of people are trying to, you know, do it perfectly. But I think a lot of it is just, just get started. And if you make a mistake, that's fine, but you at least get started and you got to start somewhere. Definitely. What are your future goals for yourself and your work? We mentioned a lot about future goals for the sports. Yeah. I mean, it's just continue to contribute, you know, learning sort of my place, my role in this, um, continue to build a network and connect with people. You know, for me, I love competing. I love having that Frisbee family. And that's really what's going to keep driving me, I think, to keep building the sport. If I wasn't so into competing and in, into that, then I wouldn't be as, as into, you know, growing the sport as I am. And so I just want to see where we can go with it. You know, it's, I'm in this for the long haul. I've met a lot of people in the sport over the last 20 years that came and went, you know, they did a lot of work. They sort of left their imprint and then they left and that's, that's fine. It's not like people owe the sport anything. It's not like you have to give back or you have to volunteer. You have to do coaching for free. Of course not. Like if you want to do that, that's great. But if you don't want to, that's also okay. If you want to charge people, you know, for coaching, that's fine. If people pay it, you know, provide value. Right. So it's, just trying to navigate all those pieces, knowing what I've learned and knowing the mistakes I made and how I can continue, continue taking that forwards is, is really what I'm all about. And, and just looking at the people that have been doing this for a while, like Stork, you know, he's a friend, a friend and a mentor and how can I continue, you know, sort of not necessarily in his footsteps, but how can I take what he's teaching me and, and teach that combined with what I've learned to the next generation and just keep that going. Um, cause there's, there's a lot of moving pieces behind the scenes and, you know, we need a lot more of that happening. Keep passing it down Yep. to start wrapping things up. Do you have any, anything coming up that you would like to mention that you're working on or have in the future? Yeah. I have a couple of projects that I'll keep quiet for now until they're confirmed. <laughs> um, but I think the best way I can sort of sum this up is, you know, we look at it as the infinite game and the finite game. So this is from Simon Sinek. So the infinite game is is the sport of Frisbee, the sport of ultimate, the sport of disc golf, the sport of canine disc, sport of overall. But the finite game is an ultimate game, a round of disc golf. You know, and so I think for me, it's doing the best I can in the finite game when I'm competing, but then those moments of the infinite game that are also within the finite game, right? So if I'm, you know, between my putts, so if I miss a putt, what I do then, that affects the infinite game. It also affects the finite game, but then it also affects the infinite game because maybe people won't want to play with me next time. Maybe it won't be as enjoyable to be around. Maybe it'll cost me a sponsor. And so I've made mistakes that affected me in the infinite game for sure. And so I think it's just understanding those two pieces. And no matter what we're doing, if it's the infinite game, there's no winners and losers. There's no rules. If it's a finite game, then okay, there's some rules. There's going to be a winner and a loser. And so just I, I think to me, that's really helped change my perspective on things the last couple of years, you know, really enjoying competing more as well, because I see it as the finite game. And I know that I can really enjoy the infinite game that's wrapped around that. 
Um, so that's really what I'd, what I would, you know, encourage people is to, you know, understand those two pieces of the sport and, you know, how you're approaching both of those pieces. Um, yeah, it's something that we can, we can always be learning and always be, you know, getting better at and improving, I think. Definitely. The good thing about the infinite game is that you have infinite time to fix those mistakes. Absolutely. It's super easy to find Rob online as his handles are Frisbee Rob just about everywhere. Uh, and I highly recommend checking him out. Also, frisbeerob.com, where you can see videos of each of his records, a ton of trick shots, and very detailed blog posts. I highly recommend it again. Rob, any last things that you would like to plug? I, don't know, I always love the quote when a ball dreams, it dreams it's a Frisbee. And I think <laughs> all of us get into the sport because we love watching a disc fly. And if we find that we're not enjoying the sport because of the people, because of the politics, whatever. Just get back to why we enjoy it. You know, why we first were attracted to it because we just, we made something fly. And I think just by simplifying it down to that can really help people appreciate it. And it's like, you know, forget about the people that are pulling you down. Forget about the tournaments that, you know, you're not getting into, you're not doing well. Just go out and make something fly and just, you know, get back to the, the, that simple fact. Frisbee Rob, it's been an honor. I've learned a ton. And thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me on. A huge thanks again to Frisbee Rob for joining me and talking about basically seven or eight different sports in one episode. I had a million questions and it was a ton of fun hearing someone who has dedicated their life to growing awareness for a sport, or a group of sports in this case, talk about them. If you didn't get enough Frisbee Rob, you know exactly where to find more, frisbeerob.com. I got lost in his website for a solid couple of hours while researching, and I'm sure I'll spend many more hours reading the blog in the future. If you crave yet more disc sports, check out the Ultimate episode with Max Shepard, an all-star in the American Ultimate Disc League, or the disc golf episode with Philo Brathwaite, one of the most respected and beloved athletes in the sport. I'd love to hear any ideas you have for niche sports or athletes you want to hear in future episodes, so send me a DM at Butler on the Air online. It would also help the podcast out a ton if you subscribed wherever you get your podcasts and left a review. Each review helps get the show in new ears. Until next time, I'm Tommy Butler, and you've been listening to The Ocho.